God, we give you thanks that uh, we get to be in this room together today. Um, maybe the one time a week where we get to be part of a people. Um, doing things together because uh, we've been marked uh, with a similar identity. And so we don't come in here, God, primarily to be entertained. We don't come in here primarily to learn. Uh, but we come in primarily to encounter you and to be shaped by you so that when we leave, we look more like the people you mean for us to look. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're in this series that we're calling Now What? Um, the sort of shrug of what you do when you're a people in the midst of transition. And we've been thinking about Israel's story through the Old Testament. And we've been looking at these moments where uh, Israel, because of their uncertain future, are prone to anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty about where they are headed. But I want to focus just a little bit on a different kind of experience this morning. Uh, and it's not so much when the future seems uncertain, but when the future seems like something is bound to go wrong. And that's a little bit different of an experience. So I want you to ask yourself, like when, when, this, when there are storm clouds out there and you can see them, like you're pretty sure it's going to go badly, what do you do? When things are getting ominous, when it's going to not work out real well. Like last weekend, my wife Ann left for five days, and I had to solo parent my three kids. And looking ahead to that, I was pretty sure that that was a storm cloud, <laughs> that I didn't have any choice. I was just walking right at it. Like w when you experience those kinds of moments, like what, does, what happens inside of you? Like me, panic is a word uh, that came to mind. Like when you, when you walk into a dark room and you're kind of all by yourself and it just, something doesn't feel right. It could be anxiety. It could just be plain old freaking out. But that's that big question of when it, it's not just uncertain, but you're pretty certain it's not going to go well. What do you do? The question of what we do when we feel that. I am a fixer. So I immediately invited my folks to come help me. <laughs> I like to fix the problem in advance. Um, I, maybe that's natural. I don't know if you're like me. I know I am like me. But if you're like me, I, I want to fix it all. Um, do you guys remember the financial crisis of 20, or 2008? That's that storm cloud I was talking about, right? Everybody's kind of like watching it. And in fact, I found uh, some newsreel footage this week um, of people anticipating the financial crisis and, the, and that emotion that we were all probably feeling. So let's, let's take a look at this video. <laughs> the stock market tumbled yet again yesterday, increasing fears that the global economy is already in a recession. Here to comment once again is Weekend Update's very own financial consultant, Oscar Rogers. <laughs> Hello, Seth. Hello, Amy. Hello, Seth and Amy. Um, okay, Oscar, last week the stock market was up nearly 500 points, and yesterday it was down more than 400 points. Do you see any hints that this roller coaster ride will be ending anytime soon? Very good analogy, Seth. The market is very close, like a, it's very much like a roller coaster ride, and I do believe it is about to end. But before we get off, we will come to find that our digital camera has fallen out of our shirt pocket, our brand new Ray-Bans have flown off our head, and we are about to financially barf on ourselves. Well, so what do we do? Well, it's actually very simple. Somebody needs to get on top of the situation and fix it! <laughs> Seth, I have 
haven't slept in two weeks. Somebody needs to look at this mess and fix it! <laughs> Tomorrow morning when I have my bowl of whole grain Cheerios, the morning paper better read, it's been fixed! <laughs> so what exactly should be done? Well, it's not rocket science, Seth. It's a simple three-step process. Step one, fix! <laughs> Step two, it! <laughs> Step three, fix it! <laughs> then repeat steps one through three until it's all fixed! <laughs> This is a lot of the same advice you gave last time. That's true, Seth. Very similar. But let me ask you, has it been fixed? I guess not. What do you think they, what do you think they need to do, Seth? I guess fix, fix it. Fix it! How do we begin to fix By it? By fixing it! Who's gonna fix it? They are! They gonna fix it because they broke it! Fix it, fix it, fix it! Today! Oscar Rogers, everyone! they relate to that you got a problem in your life and it has to be fixed so Israel this morning finds themselves in one of those moments it's not an uncertain future it's a it's a future that feels like there is a problem there is a storm cloud sitting in front of them and they want to fix it we find the story in Exodus chapter 32 uh, just setting the stage, uh, we're remembering that they were in captivity in Egypt. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 420 years. God sends Moses, and they see all of these plagues happen. That includes the Passover, and Pharaoh decides to let them go, and Moses leads them out into the wilderness. And out in the wilderness, they start to complain. They're hungry. They see bread falling from the sky. They see bird falling from the sky. Their backs are pressed up against the Red Sea when Pharaoh changes his mind. And he comes out and God shields them, splits the water they walk through on dry land, and the sea swallows Pharaoh's army. God all the while has been leading them during the day in a pillar of cloud and at night in a pillar of fire. They have witnessed time after time after time that though they are in the in-between, God is with them, God is for them, and that God is doing an incredible thing in their midst. And so they get in Exodus chapter 32 to Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God uh, invites Moses up onto the mountaintop. And the, the Bible tells us that, that as Moses goes up to the mountaintop, the pillar of cloud that had led the people that whole time actually left and went up on the mountaintop with Moses. And he's up there a long time, actually. He's up there for 40 days. And the people are down below. They don't know what is happening. They didn't understand what the invitation was. And every evidence that God had been with them the whole time has essentially evaporated right in front of their eyes. And so while we know that God has invited Moses up there, the people don't know that. And so they look out at this wilderness that they still have no idea how long it's going to be. And their leader is gone and God seems to have vanished. So you can imagine that they've got a problem that they need to fix. So at the very beginning of Exodus 32, they say this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, I love this, that's so dismissive. As for that guy, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him says Moses was long in coming down the mountain. And the people are getting anxious. The people are getting restless. But their response, I think, is interesting because it says that 
The people noticed that Moses was a long time in coming down, but what they don't say is, Aaron, Moses seems to be gone. Looks like you're the leader now. What they say is, Moses seems to be gone, so make us an idol that will be a god for us. Which to me means that they don't really care about Moses. But Moses being gone to them is evidence that God has left. Is evidence that God has left. It looks like God is the one who is gone, and so God is the one we have to replace. God was long in coming down the mountain. In other words, God felt absent. And again, it's not an unrealistic conclusion to come to because they've watched God be with them in very tangible ways this whole journey, but then all of that changes. The pillar of cloud like goes up on top of the mountain. It's not unrealistic to assume that God is gone. The people had gotten used to God working and leading in a particular way, but then everything changes, and it feels like God has left. So I'll ask this question. Does anybody ever feel like maybe God has left without a permission slip? Like, you didn't get permission before you went AWOL, God. How does that feel when you experience that? What does it feel like when it feels like God is completely absent from your life? Hold on to that because that's what Israel is feeling. We want to understand what they're feeling because we want to understand how what they're feeling relates to what they do next. So they tell Aaron, make us gods to go before us. And what happens is really there's two moves that that Israel makes uh, led by Aaron here in this moment. The first thing that Israel does is that they look around at what they have in their hand. They look to their own resources. If we were to keep reading here, it says that Aaron's like, okay, well, everybody, give me your earrings and your jewelry and all the gold that you've got, and we'll melt this down and we'll make an idol out of it, right? So they just look around for what they have, and then they make an idol out of it. It's interesting, in in verse 1 it says, make us gods to go before us. Well, who has been going before the people this whole journey? Yahweh, right? God. It's exactly what we read in Exodus 13 two weeks ago. God has been going before them, but in this moment, when God feels far, when God feels absent, they say, we need something else to go before us, something else to lead us. And so they make this idol. But here's what I want to point out here, that idolatry is not just worshiping something that's not God. That's not really what idolatry is. Idolatry fundamentally is about control because idols are things that we create that substitute for God. Idols are things we create that substitute for God because we know we can't control God, but I can control an idol. And so in the end, idolatry substitutes something we can create or substitutes ourselves for God. And this is what Israel does. They get anxious, they get fearful, they get afraid, and so they make something that they can control that substitutes for God to get rid of their anxiety. They take what they have on hand, their resources, their capacities, and they use them to create something that will relieve their inner tension. And they make a giant golden cow. That's kind of weird. That's what they went with. 
But making this giant golden cow is evidence that they're really putting their trust in themselves rather than God. So idolatry, I think, is kind of a funny thing because not too many of us have big gold cows that we bow down to, right? Um, well, although this guy is kind of a big gold cow that we all bow down to. Maybe we don't know it, but many of us probably bow down to that one. But aside from that guy, many of us don't like have something in our house that we bow down to. But, but if idolatry is more than that, if it's substituting ourselves, if it's substituting something we can create, if it's substituting something we can produce, substituting those things for God, and thinking that what I can create or produce will solve my problems, will fix it, well, then that actually is pretty common, isn't it? That's something that we might all pivot to all the time. Like when life gets turned upside down, we might get like Aaron. Okay, I'm getting restless here. What do I have? How can I fix this problem? And then I want to use what I've got, whatever it is, and I use it as a substitute to feel secure instead of leaning into God in the midst of that uncertainty. So what happens? They make this gold cow, they start to worship it. What happens to the people when they do that? Let's keep reading. In verse 7, it says this. God is up there with Moses, and he sees what's happening below. And so it says this in verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. This is what happens when we substitute things we can create or produce for God, is we become corrupt. Like, what does it mean to be corrupt, right? To corrupt something is to make a change to it so that it, the thing becomes unreliable. It can no longer be used the way it was intended, right? That's what something means when it becomes corrupt. Like, you think about a corrupted file on your computer. The problem is when you have a corrupted file is that something has been altered, and now the file is not only unable to be used for what it was supposed to be used for, it's actually also a danger to everything else it touches. It can't be what it's supposed to be, and it, it endangers everything else. And that's what God is saying about his people here. Something about the character of the people of God has changed. And because of that, they can't be what they've been intended to be. And they are a danger to everyone else around them, particularly because they walk around labeled the people of God. And God in, in continues to explain what he means by uh, the people have become corrupted in verse 8. We can read this here in verse 8. It says, They become corrupted because they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And they've bound down to it, and they've sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Look at what God says the people have done when they made the idol. He says the people have bowed down to it. In other words, they have, they've given it their worship. The thing that God deserves, they've given it to something else. They've also offered it sacrifices, which is a little bit different. To offer something a sacrifice means that I give it my devotion. I give it my allegiance. The very thing that God deserves from his people, their devotion and their allegiance, they're now giving to something they've made. 
it says this, that not only have they bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it, they point at it and say, this is who brought you out of Egypt. They substitute the very thing God has done, and they tell that story and they give, it, they give credit to this idol that they've made. In other words, they begin to look at this idol as the one who has been doing the saving. That story, the one who brought you out of Egypt, is the very thing that Chuck talked about that they're supposed to remember because it reminds them who they are in the world. The stories we tell about ourselves shapes the way we think about ourselves. It gives us our identity. And when they say, no, it wasn't God who brought us out of Egypt, but this golden calf that brought us up out of Egypt... It's corrupting their very identity, who they are in the world. As an aside, that's why we do this every week. Because we are prone to forgetting the story that defines who we are in the world. Just like Israel, forgetting the story that defined who they were, we come to this table every week to remember the story that defines who we are. Imagine Imagine if we came in here and came to this table and pointed to someone other than Jesus. Wouldn't that seem ludicrous? That's what Israel has done. God says in verse 9, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. This isn't just like when you have to sleep on the couch at night. Being stiff-necked means that you are arrogantly stubborn unteachable, and rebellious. So this is Israel's moment. They got a problem, they need to fix it, and they look to their own resources, they make something they can control, and they substitute it for God across the board. We probably aren't in danger of like melting these plates down and making a cow. But what would a corrupted people look like in a modern day? That, I think, is the question. What would it look to to do that same move now? Well, I would suggest this, that a modern-day corrupted people would be a church where God is replaced by technique. This is the community that looks around and says, what do we have, what are we good at, what can we do, and puts its trust in that rather than God. It's possible, I'll say it this way, it's possible to be good enough at the program that you don't need God. It's possible to be good enough at the program that it doesn't matter if God is there or not. You can still produce something. But that is the same move Israel makes. I had a mentor one time that talked to me about ministry, and he said this, he said, I never want to do anything that doesn't push me to the point where I'm convinced it's going to fail. Because if I know it's going to work from the start, and then that's all I ever do, then I have never trusted in anything other than my own ability to get it done. But if we push ourselves beyond what we know we can accomplish, then we've put ourselves in a position where we are forced to trust that God is going to do it. Now, God gives us these resources, but it is a very subtle move to go from trusting God, who gives us resources and capacity, to trusting the resources and the capacities themselves. 
A church whose trust is in what they bring to the table will ultimately become corrupt and will bankrupt themselves of God's presence in their midst. Now, the tragedy, I think, of this whole story, this whole episode, is that this, so God's people are down at the bottom of the mountain, assuming that God has abandoned them. They're riding off Moses as lost to the mountain. And they're begging for an idol to relieve their anxiety. But do you, do you remember what's happening when that's going on? What's Moses getting on top of the mountain? The law, right? If you were to look in Exodus, preceding Exodus 32, you have God giving Moses the very words of God that were meant to orient the entire people's way of life so that they could be his people in the world. Looking back, Israel seems so foolish to have traded that moment for the quick fix of an idol, right? But it's a good reminder to us, I think, that sometimes it's when God seems most absent that he's actually revealing himself most profoundly We just can't see it yet. Sometimes when God seems most absent, he's about to reveal himself incredibly profoundly. We just can't see it yet. So how does this speak to us as a church? So we talk about uh, the church being the body of Christ and each of us is a part of it. And so um, we're probably all prone in, I know that I am anyways, that I am prone in my own life when I have a problem, I want to fix it. And I always know the solution and I just start executing the plan. Right? And then, then that's probably really true when I feel like God's distant or absent. And so I guess I just want to ask you, what about you? What are the quick fixes in your life? When the, when the problem seems to come up, what is it that you reach for to fix that problem? What is it that you trust to solve the problem? I mean, I'll give you an example from my life. Like, I've done a fair amount of school in my life. That's a resource that I have, no doubt. But it's also the resource that I'm constantly tempted to put my trust in when I have a problem I need to solve that I can think through the situation and figure out the the answer and and put it into practice. And I just put my trust in the fact that I've been in class a lot. But whatever it is, we bring ourselves wherever we go, into this body. And so if we're all individually prone to trusting our gifts and skills and resources to fix our own problems individually, when we come into this room, when we are this people, we're going to be tempted to do that too here. So think about it. Not just necessarily related to living stones, but but in all of life. What resources do you have that you might be more prone to trust than God himself? What do you look to to relieve anxiety? Your answer there will be the golden calf. The answer there will be the golden calf. So here's why I'm saying all of this. That a church in transition will have all kinds of opportunities to let anxiety or an uncertain future drive us to a quick fix. A church in church, we'll have constant opportunity to do this. And so if you ever hear yourself thinking these kinds of things, like this might be the golden calf moment. Like if we just fixed this, or if maybe if we rebranded, or if we had a better program for, 
Or maybe we refurbish that space. Or if the music was a little bit more my style, or if the preaching was a little bit different, or if the coffee was a little bit better. Maybe that one. We'll allow that one. I'm just kidding. The coffee is great. For us as a church, here's the question. I want us to to always have this in mind, is that will we trust our own resources to the point of making an idol out of them? Or will we trust that even if we can't see him in the fog, that God is actually doing something? We'll be faced with that choice again and again and again during a season of transition, I promise. Trusting our own selves and the things we bring to the table, those are the things that cause us to miss the beautiful grace of God that has been present in the redemptive journey that God has been doing in this church and will continue to do in this church. So you have Israel making this pivot. There's an alternative, though. As reminded of it this week in the New Testament when Jesus feeds the 5,000, Remember this story, right? Jesus is teaching all these folks, this 5,000, and actually most scholars think that that's 5,000 men, and so it's probably closer to ten to 12,000 people listening to Jesus teach. And the disciples notice that, that the folks are getting hungry, and so he's, they tell Jesus, hey, send them off to get something to eat. And what does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And what's the first thing they do? They look for what they have in their hand. They look for the resources. Not very many. Five loaves of bread, two fish. This is what we got. But notice the difference. They don't do this. They don't say, okay, what do we got? Okay, we got five loaves, and there's 15,000 people. Let's cut these five loaves of bread into 15,000 pieces. They're probably about that size if we did that. 15,000 pieces of bread and 15,000 pieces of fish, and then we'll have people get in line and come through and... They don't take what they have and design the solution. What do they do? They take what they have and they offer it to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He makes way more of it than they could have ever made on their own. So much so that all thousands of people are fed and there are baskets and baskets left over. Do you notice the difference? Instead of taking what's in their hand and designing the solution to fix the problem, they take what's in their hand and they offer it to the one who can make more of it than they could ever make on their own. But here's what I noticed this week. I never noticed this before. Who feeds the people? Not Jesus. Trick question. Not Jesus. The disciples do. They are the ones who feed the people. But they only can do it because Jesus has made much more of what they brought to the table than they could have ever made on their own. They were the ones sent out to do the mission that Jesus had given them. And they still get to do it. Bringing what we have in our hands, what we bring to the table, and offering them to Jesus is the opposite of what Israel does by trying to relieve the anxiety by controlling the situation. I have this little... uh, book of old Puritan prayers. It's a real page turner. Um, (laughs) And I have this little book of old Puritan prayers, and uh, at the very back is a prayer for preachers. And the first line of it 
I mean, I pray this, I pray that prayer every Sunday, but the first line of it I love, and it's not just for preachers, but the first line of the prayer is, I desire to preach today, but I come weak and needy to the task. I think that's, that's a good line for all of us. We desire to be used of God today, but we all come weak and needy to the task. It's like when we, we do all this work to do what we do here, and it's like, hey, we've, we've done a lot, but the only reason it matters at all is if God does more with it than what we can do with it on our own. That's true in all of life, I think, not just Sunday worship. I mean, that's the story of the gospel. In, in this way of looking at it, like all of human history has been the story of our collective attempt to fix what ails us. And God takes all that broken attempting to find wholeness and he bears it up in himself in Jesus. To each of us individually, to know Jesus, to know Jesus is to have held out our own sort of personal attempt to make ourselves whole and to give it to Jesus and allow him to make more of it than we could have ever made of it on our own. I mean, isn't that the story of each of us that knows Jesus? That he's sort of taken the loaves and fishes of our own struggle and is doing something amazing, shaping a miracle out of what it is we actually bring to the table. If that's the story of the gospel, then that has to be the story of our life together. And there will be times in our future together, probably in the next week even, when we will have this choice with what will we do with what God has given us? Will we put our trust in what we can do with it or with what God can do with it? God is always revealing himself to his people if we have the eyes to see it. And that means that we get to say, we will not trust our own devices, but we will offer the gifts that God has given us back to him, trusting that he will make much more out of it than we can make on our own. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that we get to come into this space every week and remember the story of the way that Jesus was broken to put our brokenness back together. That without you drawing us to yourself, without you reassembling all of our struggles and pains and joys, that none of this matters, none of this means anything. And that if you aren't the one doing the work, the work isn't worth doing. And so... We want to offer ourselves to you that you would make more of us and that you would do more through us than we could ever do on our own. We give ourselves to you fully. It's in your name we pray. Amen.